Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host Albert, and this is episode 9, Playing Both Sides. Well, welcome back. As I said last time, it would be about three weeks between shows. Turns out it was four. Um, nonetheless, I've been keeping busy, or at least trying to. I've even managed to play some games. I've actually uh, played Lord of the Rings, uh, the card game, some more. Last time I told you I played the second scenario and I gave up on it solitaire. Uh, I tried the third scenario and it was even harder. As a matter of fact, it was just downright frustrating. It was a sort of scenario where I played it solitaire and it, it felt totally luck dependent. Chances are I'd lose and I'd draw the first three or four cards and I could tell right away if I was going to win or lose and I'd consider a lost game and draw three more cards. So finally I played it ignoring a few things here and there as I went along sort of fudging rolls and that kind of thing and managed to finish. Yes it was cheating but at least I got the story out of it and it was a cool story I thought. It was sort of satisfying. Since and I've read that that scenario is actually uh, quite challenging for everybody so I felt better about that. Last time I also talked bad about Elder Sign. Well about a week later I went to a local game convention here and won the game as a door prize. Um, shame on me for talking bad about the game. I've played it a few times. One solitaire, once with six players. The game was fun. The first time I played it was six players. We did really bad. And I don't know, it didn't feel terribly satisfying. I couldn't say why. The second time I played it was solitaire. I won that game. I was surprised I won. But it went okay. It, it was a little more fun than the other. I think it was because I understood the rules a little bit better and the game a little bit better. Other than that, I've played I played another game of Veneer recently, but not much else solitaire. I haven't had time for that. Well, I played the game I'm going to talk about tonight, which is Men of Iron, the Rebirth of Infantry. But more on that one later. Okay. There's one more thing I want to talk about before I get into today's uh, topic, and that is Essen, or Spiel at Essen, I guess. It would be a more technically correct name. If you're not familiar with it, es- the Essen is a fair that happens in the city of Essen, Germany every year. It's the largest game fair in the world. And on Board Game Geek, there is a, there's a geek list that was started by the admins showing all the games that are going to be previewed at the game fair. So I went through that list and found all the games that are playable by one player. Games that are playable in solitaire. There was about 18 pages of, I think it was 17 pages of games listed total and 25 games per page and I found about I found 18 total games that I think fit this list so it comes out to about 4% of the games at Essen assuming this is these 17 pages of games is a complete list but anyway let me tell you about all the ones I got anyway let me tell you about all the ones I got and I should also say one more thing it is not a complete list I left out games or kids games that seemed like they were primarily kids games I tried to go for games that were a little more complicated than say Candyland. First up is Naufragos, which has been renamed to Crusoe. It is a one to four player cooperative worker placement game and it is the theme is something to do with Robinson Crusoe. That was interesting because the next game on the list is called Friday it is also has to do with Robinson Crusoe. The the game is named after Friday, Robinson Crusoe's buddy in the story. This is interesting. This is a deck building game 
designed by Friedman Fries and is designed specifically for solitaire play. So I'm looking forward to that one. All the games by Friedman Fries that I've played have been interesting. The third item is Spiel Mini, which is actually a game. It is a bunch of dice in a plastic pyramid. And it has an open rule set so that anybody can make rules for it. And included in the game, I believe, will be some solitaire rules. I also read that the the rules that might be include that will be included might be contributed by uh, players, so the quality may vary. Next up is Big Five. It is a one to four player hand management pattern matching card game by Reinhard Knizia. Next up is Dungeon Fighter, which is a one to six player cooperative dexterity dungeon crawl game. Next would be Meltdown 2020, a 1-5 player modular game about getting your people out of radiation zone before they take lethal doses. Actually sounds cool. Uh, number 7 is Cupid, 1-4 player pattern building hand management game. Number 8 is Byword, which is actually a reprint, a 1-4 player game designed by Sid Saxon. Number 9 is Number Please. A 1 to 99 player collection of math games using polyhedral dice. So basically, it's a box of dice, much like a Spiel Mini. Number 10 is Flashpoint Fire Rescue, a 1 to 6 player cooperative game about putting out fires and getting people out of burning buildings. That's another one that sounds neat and was a first release on Kickstarter. Number 11 is PAX, a 1 to 4 player. Drafting game about the survival wars of the Roman Republic. Number 12 is Aura and Labora. A 1 to 4 player medieval worker placement game by Uwe Rosenberg. The box looks a lot like Agricola, but the gameplay is apparently a lot like Lahav. Should be interesting. Number 13 Welcome to Walnut Grove. A 1 to 4 player cross between a jigsaw puzzle and a worker placement game. Looks really pretty. Don't know anything else other than what I just told you, though. Number 14 is really two games, or I should say two expansions, uh, for the game Mondo. Mondo Expansion A and Mondo Expansion B. It, they make the game 1-5 to five player. In other words, they add the ability to add one more player each to the game Mondo. Next would be another expansion, K2 Broad Peak, a 1-5 to five player expansion for K2. Number 16 is Bios Megafauna, a 1 to 4 player auction bidding game of evolution from Sierra Madre games by Phil Eklund. All the Sierra Madre games I've seen or played really look interesting and well thought out. I'm really curious about how this game handles the auction bidding part of the game, at least in a 1 player game. Number 17, Mage Knight the board game. A 1-4 player fantasy deck building game with a board by WizKids. I read a little bit about it today on a Solo Nexus and it sounds interesting. It's very modular and very customizable and there's a lot of different options you can put in when you play the game. So it should have a lot of replayability. And finally, number 18, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. 1-6 player game about Sherlock Holmes, unfortunately still only in French. So that's it. Hopefully, if you're lucky enough to go to Spiel this year, you can pick up one or two of these. Okay, on with our main segment. 
Okay, so let me talk about playing both sides. What that means is taking a game off your shelf that's basically a multiplayer game, setting it up as if you are multiple people, and taking turns playing each character just as the normal rules describe. For each player, I should say, not each character. This is a great way to, to get to play some games you don't get to play as often simply because you don't have the multiple players handy all the time. There's different ways to handle this and there's benefits and drawbacks to it so I'm going to try and talk a little bit about each. First the benefits well the most obvious is you get to play many many games that you otherwise wouldn't get to play simply because they're not designed for one player don't have errands for one player. Second you could use this as a way to try out strategies that you haven't played before for example you've got a a war game you've been playing and you think you might be able to use a specific attack attacking a certain city or something and that might work well for you but you haven't had a chance to try it against an opponent your friend you could go ahead and try it out playing against yourself and see how it works out and see if that's a strategy that might work and finally or probably primarily you could use it as a a way to learn a new game that you've got you're trying to figure out the rules you've read them read through them once and now you want to play it out and make sure you understand everything right and what you've read makes sense. The drawbacks, well, there really is just one main drawback, I think, and that's that the games aren't designed for one player, so some of the fun and challenge of the game are going to be lost. For example, an extreme example would be something like Clue, where each character has secret has cards hidden, and you're trying to figure out what cards you have. Well, once you've gone around the table one time, you know all the cards each character has, so you have to pretend not to know when you're playing it. That's just not as fun as actually not knowing and trying to solve it all. And so this is true whether it's a, a deduction game or any game that has hidden information or even with open information, just knowing what strategy you're going to use as player two is going to detract from the fun you're having as player one because you're going to be missing out on some of the surprises that would have happened. So the, the third thing I wanted to talk about, what games would work well to play both sides but it might be easier to just tell you what's not going to work as well. And I already mentioned the main one, and it's games with hidden information. Any game where you're supposed to not know something that the other player knows is going to be really hard to pull off by yourself. It can be done. I think it requires some practice and some thinking about what you would do and plan ahead of time and go with it even once you find out it's not the best strategy until you decide at some point you would know that that's not what you want to do. So. Yeah, it could definitely be tricky. A second category that doesn't work as well is auction games. Um, again, it's because you need to pre to bid pretending not to know what the other person wants to bid. And as soon as you go around the table and start bidding as the other person, well, you know what the first guy was bidding and when he wants to go and stop and whatnot. So again, those are kind of hard to, to play and fool yourself. Those might be harder than games with hidden information, I think. The third type is diplomacy games where you have to negotiate with yourself. A classic example would be the game Diplomacy where I think you actually walk out of the room with a person and make some strategies together. First of all, you don't have to walk out of the room if you're the only person there playing all six rows because you aren't going to tell yourself what you just told yourself or something like that. Second of all, it's not that fun to talk to yourself. Well, it can be handy, I guess. But again, it, it's just hard to negotiate with yourself and pull that off. I don't think I would even ever want to try it. 
The fourth category, which I thought about, which I don't know if it'll ever really come up much, is games where there's direct head-to-head confrontation. An extreme example would be uh, arm wrestling. be really hard to arm wrestle against yourself. So if you avoid any games that have any of these four categories, you're probably going to succeed better, at least at first. I think the more you play multiplayer games in a solitaire mode, the better you'll get at this. The biggest challenge really is just making a move honestly in a method that you think, in a way that you think is what you would do if you didn't know information that you already do know about the other player. So I thought of a couple questions that I don't think I have answers for, but one is, are war games better for this sort of play than non-war games? Sure seems that a lot more war games are played solitaire than, say, Euro games or Ameritrash games. I think, I do think they'd work out better, and I think that is because the war games tend to be more open-ended. You have got a big map and lots of places to go, so you could just sort of explore and try out things and be more free with the game than, say, a Euro game where you have fewer options of what you can do in a given game. You know, you get, like, five actions you can choose from every round. You've got a lot of opportunities to try out different strategies that may or may not work. Like, you might be curious... Uh, playing a game. What if I decide to flood the market and buy everything and mess everybody's strategy up? What would happen then? I know I wouldn't do good, but it'd be fun to see how it impacts the rest of the game and how the markets tra- or end up working out. You could pull that off if you're playing by yourself a lot better than if you've got three friends and you just mess up a game for them, just for the whim of it. And finally, a third item worth noting is uh, something I read on Solo Nexus a few months back. It was talking specifically about miniatures games, but I think this could apply to any type of game, is to add a narrative to the game by giving a character or one of the players a story or a goal. And try and play the game with that goal in mind, even though sometimes it may be a strategy that would work against you as the player. It tends to make the game more fun and more interesting. For example, you could be playing Catan and decide that one of the people just really hate wool because they have a wool allergy. Player 2 does not like wool. So you try and play player 2 by never buying wool or buying as little as often and selling it off cheap. And that can make it more interesting, especially if you end up winning with that player. All right, so that, that's the, the thought that I had about this. Let me go ahead and talk about the game I played, Solitaire, which was Men of Iron, The Rebirth of Infantry. So Men of Iron is a war game published by GMT Games and designed by Richard H. Berg. It was published in 2005, and uh, it's called Men of Iron, Volume 1, The Rebirth of Infantry. Let me read uh, what it says on Board Game Geek from GMT's website. Men of Iron's first volume covers the reemergence of infantry in the early 14th century, along with a more perceptive understanding of the value of combined arms warfare, especially with good use of defensive terrain. The scenarios highlight the key elements that made the battle so fascinating, the defensive power of the longbow, especially when used in coordination with dismounted or even mounted men-at-arms. Given the right deployment of forces, the inability to take advantage of the marvelous abilities of the vaunted knights, the finest mounted force in Europe, became something of a surprise to many experts. I find it kind of hard to follow that sentence. I hope you guys didn't. And let me read one more part. Men of Iron is also GNT's gift to the gamer who enjoys playing solitaire. 
The system is designed for both individual and face-to-face -face play without any loss of insight or fun. To see what happened in these famous battles and why. The unit, the units feature longbows, crossbows, men-at-arms, mounted, dismounted, and unhorsed, hobbilars, genitors, nasty scots with axes, and even a couple of bombards. And the commanders, the greatest, the, the great English king Edward III and his son, the Black Prince Wallace, and the Bruce, Capital de Booch, and a host of kings. As you see, GMT says it's it's gift to the solitaire gamer. The game is pretty open, and there there is no hidden information in it. The only thing that might be hidden is strategy, but apparently the strategy tends to be pretty obvious in every game. So in the box you'll get two map sheets with three maps each on them, so a total of six maps, one per scenario. And you'll get 700 counters, some player aid cards, a rules book, a scenario book, a couple dice. So first off, let me start by saying I haven't played a lot of Hex Encounter War games. I don't think I've played any before this one. And if I have, definitely this is the biggest. Each scenario probably had, I'd say about 50 counters in it. The three I played, I only, I've played the first three so far, and that's as far as I got. No, that's not right. Maybe there's more like 100 counters average per scenario. But the, the way the game plays is one person starts, and that's determined by the scenario. He moves one set of units based on one leader. He moves one leader in his units or activates them and takes any actions like movement and attacking. Then if he wants to move another leader, roll die, and if you get lower than the leader's rating, which is about 50-50 success for the ones I saw. If you, if you succeed, go again. And then when that leader and his units finish, pick another leader and do it again. And you can keep going back and forth with any number of your leaders doing this until you fail. And at that point, the other player goes. And then he'll take turns with leaders until he fails the row. There's also opportunities to, to steal a move from your opponent. When he's going to roll for leader, you could try and intercept and and see if your leader could go instead. If you fail, then he could choose any leader without having to roll, no matter how unlikely it was for that leader to succeed. So what can I say about this game? I played the first three scenarios. The first scenario is the Battle of Falkirk. Okay, the game has six scenarios, dated from 1298 through 1367. They're the Battle of Falkirk, the Battle of Courtrai, the Battle of Bannockburn, Cresci, Poitiers, and Naheda. I played the first three, so let me tell you about each of my experience with each of those. The first one was I played the the Battle of Falkirk, the first scenario in the book, and that scenario apparently looked like it was really just to introduce you to the game. It was extremely unbalanced, and it's basically impossible for one of the sides to win. The the Scots are doomed to lose. What you do get to do is play as the British attack the Scots and destroy them and learn the mechanics as you're going along. I f did find the rules hard to learn and hard to follow. I, I don't know why, they're just a little bit confusing. They weren't very long. There's about 12 pages of rule, but I just found them confusing to read. The second scenario I tried was Courtrai. I went in and played these in order. This was definitely more interesting and the underdog had a better chance to win. 
in the Battle of Courtrai, the Flemish, let's see what it says in the back of the box, the Battle of the Golden Spurs, the Flemish shocked the elite French army with one of their earliest displays of power of solid infantry using defensive position. In this one, the Flemish are favored to win. I use a strategy that I won as the French pretty easily, and I think, I, I know I did some things wrong, and I don't know how much impact that would have had on the game, I assume a lot, since it shouldn't have been easy to win. I did find that as I was playing this game, I like to play the underdog, and I like it to be in a position where it's going to be hard for me to win, so I was immediately rooting for the French. When you're playing a solitaire game and you're playing both sides, you really can't root for one side or the other, you really should try and play both sides to their best ability. And no, I, I know I didn't do that. I did a poor job of playing the Flemish well. The third scenario was Bannockburn. And here, this is the Scots and the British again. Robert the Bruce's famous triumph over a numerically superior but literally bogged out English army. This one was, it was neat. This scenario was definitely a lot more balanced. And I think I did a better job of playing the game fairly here. I don't remember the outcome. As a matter of fact, I didn't finish the scenario. It was getting later than I really should have been up that night. It was a school night for me. I had to go to work the next morning. So eventually I said, you know, it's obvious the British are going to win at this point. So I'm just going to go ahead and quit the game. So my experience was there's some things I definitely did not like about this game. I think some people would call it fiddly. There's a lot of little counters and a lot of markers you have to put on the board to keep track of things and I did not enjoy doing that the marker the counters tend to be hard to pick up in these little maps and moving things around knock things around I just find that a little bit frustrating for myself so I didn't enjoy the flow of the game a whole lot I really did enjoy the history that I was learning as I played and seeing how the armies were set up for a battle and kind of getting a sense of what it was like to be in these fights the rule book and the scenario books do a really good job about telling you about the history and giving you a, a sense of what it was like at, at the time. And it, I think it sets it up really well to to play each scenario. I th also think it would be more fun as a two-player game than a solitaire game, personally. I don't think a game that's really unbalanced where one side's always going to win, such as in the first scenario, is a good solitaire experience. And it's definitely not a good two-player experience. I should mention that the scenario books do include variations to make the each scenario more balanced. I decided I'd rather have a more historical game experience, so I decided not to use those. And apparently some of those uh, variations actually do change the scenario enough to, to switch the favor over to the other side. So they might be worth trying out if you're looking for a more balanced experience. I do still want to try the rest of the scenarios just to... Again, a little bit about the history and about those battles and what they were like. As, as I said, that was pretty cool. This game is still in print, and as a matter of fact, GMT just released a second in the series, Men of Iron 2 Infidel, which talks about the first Crusades. That was released this year. And again, that's designed for one or two players with the same description. The rules, from what I've seen in Infidel, are clearer and easier to follow. They're very, very similar. There's a few minor changes I've noticed. But for the most part, once you've learned one game, you'll be able to play the other one pretty well. And the book does point out where the rules are different 
an infidel from the original men of iron. <coughs> Excuse me. There's also a couple other games that use the same system. There's an expansion for Men of Iron called Agincourt that was released in one of the issues of a C3I GMT's magazine. It included a map and all the counters to play that scenario, but no rules. You would need the base game to have the rules for it. There's another game called Kulikovo 1380 The Golden Horde, which was published in Against the Odds magazine in 2006, I'm not sure the issue number, and Suleiman the Magnificent, also in Against the Odds magazine in 2004. Alright, so my thoughts on this game. One, more complicated than I liked, too many counters and too many bits on the map at once, and it, it was all pretty crowded. Two, it's really neat when you're learning to, to learn history if you have specific interest in these battles or this time period or medieval warfare in general. It's interesting to, to get a good sense of what it was like. And the third thing, you really have to try and be fair about playing both sides. You really have to try and be fair about playing both sides when you're playing a, solid, a game solitaire. And I think it will take a few tries to get that down probably better to start with an easier game and then work your way to harder games or more complicated games as you go along. Okay, I think that's it for Men of Iron. Before signing off, I want to tell you about my next two episodes. The next planned one is uh, RPGs. I'm going to play I'm going to play a couple role-playing games using the Mythic system which allows you to play a game solitaire. That one's going to take me a while to prepare for because i got to read the mythic rules and then pick a couple role-playing games and read those rule books. So there's a few hundred pages and all that, I think. So it does depend what games I pick. I will probably play Mouse Guard and something else. I'm not sure what. If anybody wants uh, to give some input on what I should try, check out my uh, role-playing games in uh, on Board Game Geek. Check out my collection and... If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. So anyway, that will take me a while to get ready. So it might be four weeks, maybe even a little more before that's ready. Because of that, I'm going to publish another show before that. A Halloween episode. I really was hoping to do one anyway. So so there you go. It'll either be next week or the weekend right before Halloween. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected by a Creative Commons license. The song and copyright information can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published in the Creative Commons, non-commercial, share-alike license. Thanks for listening.